Thank you, Gene. One of the things I love about the music in our church is it just covers such a broad spectrum. I've been in places where it was all vanilla, you know, and I love vanilla ice cream. But every now and then I like a little chocolate syrup and strawberries or bananas or pineapples. And I like a banana split every now and then. Sometimes I like a Sunday. There's a place one block from where I grew up, and it was a Tasty Freeze when I was growing up. And I don't know if any of you remember the Tasty Freeze, but they always had that big ice cream neon sign on the front. And, and they had a Boston shake there. Does anybody know what a Boston shake is? I tell you what, it will make you stand up and lick the top of your head. You get a Boston shake, and it's a milkshake, and on top of it, they put a sundae. And then they cover it with whipped cream and then put a cherry on top of it. Ah, let's go get one. <laughs> Takes us four hours to get there if I'm driving. So. But I, I appreciate it. Warren Wiersbe and I were talking uh, this past week, and, and Mark, I forgot to do this, so I'll do it publicly now. Uh, Warren just wanted me to compliment Mark and the music ministry here on uh, the great job that they do with music and the great things that they do and, and just the balance and the blend of everything that they do. And, and I'm grateful and I'm very blessed that I get to, I get to preach after the kind of music that we, we get to have week in and week out by so many different people in so many different ways, but all of it with one message, and that is the message of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22 through verse, well, not through verse, it's through chapter 26. Are you all ready? Everybody okay? Now, I've talked about ice cream Sundays, I've talked about banana splits, and now you've got to sit and listen to me talk. Paul has, uh, is going to be in prison under Roman chains for about five years. We're now in the early 60s of the first century. And Paul has been imprisoned. He's on his way to Rome. He's been in chains. But you know, Paul may not have intended that he spend five years in chains and going through the various trials, but if he hadn't, we would not have the prison epistles, one of which was the epistle to the Philippians. And this summer, we're going to go through the book of Philippians on Sunday mornings and Sunday night one right after another, and cover the book of Philippians uh, in Sunday mornings and Sunday nights this summer. But uh, I, I was thinking about Philippians and studying and doing some background work on it this week. And as I looked at, at the passages that we're going to look at tonight, it reminded me of Philippians 1.12, where Paul said, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. What Paul was telling us is that it, it may have looked like a bad deal when I was in prison, but I want to tell you, people from Caesar's Guard have heard the gospel. They're chained to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and every time they chain one to me, I just start telling them about Jesus. And he can't leave, and I can't leave, and so he's stuck with me, and he's got to listen to me talk, and he's got to see the visitors that come in. And this has been wonderful because I have a captive audience. And can you imagine being a hard, seasoned Roman soldier entrusted in the Praetorian Guard? You've seen everything. You've been everywhere. You are 
a man of men, and you're chained to the Apostle Paul, a frail old man, probably with poor eyesight, beaten up, bruised, and yet his powerful witness impacted even all the way to the house of Caesar. What Paul does in these next few chapters is he gives a continuous witness of his relationship with Christ. And I want us to look at three or four things tonight about the impact of a changed life. Because Paul is certainly a living testimony of what God can do in changing a life. It is the most vivid example in Scripture that we have of a changed life when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul. And so the first thing we're going to look at tonight is a changed life is illustrated by a determined witness. And we're going to go back to what we talked about in the previous message and start with that word apologetics in chapter 22 and verse 1. The word is defense or apologetics. Paul gives an apologetic. Now, there will never be a defense without a determination. In other words, I will never learn to defend my faith until I am determined to learn to do it. I will always leave it to somebody else. I will tell somebody to go to the preacher or the, or the teacher or the, my Sunday school teacher or somebody else until I decide that I'm going to sit down and read and study and learn how to get a grip on the Bible for myself and get the ability within myself for the power of the Spirit teaching me the Word of God how to defend the faith that I have. By the way, there's a great series of books that are out by, is it Lee Strobel? I think it's Lee Strobel. The Case of Christ, The Case for Faith, and now his newest one is The Case for the Creator. If you notice, I got an email this week from a member saying, can you help me know how to deal with someone who does not believe that God's the Creator? And I said, just saw it in the bookstore, just picked it up. It's Lee Strobel's The Case for the Creator. Now, here's a guy who is a journalist and an agnostic. He knows how to write to touch a secular audience, and they're great books Uh, for you to read. I don't get any royalties from them, but I just thought I'd recommend them, so for whatever that's worth. Paul is convicted that he needs to take a stand. Now, remember, he's been beaten. He's being taken to the Roman barracks, and he stops this Roman guard, and he says, I need to talk to these people. I need to share with them about Christ, and so he gives an apologetic. Why? Because for Paul and for us, we understand that there is no other way and no other name. And so every other way and every other name is an error. Now, that sounds arrogant to people, that we think we have the only way, and that's Jesus Christ, that there are not many roads and many ways to God. I love what Mike Warnke used to say years ago. He used to say, you know, you can be arrogant when you're right. We don't have anything to apologize for. It's not arrogance. It's confidence in truth. If I'm confident in the truth, I'm not arrogant. I'm just bold about what I believe and why I believe it. And I know how to defend it. Secondly is the word testimony. Chapter 22 and verse 18. Chapter 22 and verse 18. He gives a testimony. Not only does he give an apologetic, a defense, but he begins to give his testimony. And the Greek word there is the one that we come to the word martyr. Jesus used this word when he said, you shall be my 
witnesses. The word is martyrion. It, it is the word we translate often, martyr. A witness is a martyr, one who gives witness with their lives. And so Paul says not only is he giving a defense, but he's giving a testimony. You have to have both. It's not enough to argue and defend the faith. You have to have evidence of a life-changing experience to back up what you're saying. Now, someone will ask, how do you grow a church to be a healthy church? Uh, Let me suggest three things. Number one, the pastor has to equip the saints by teaching the Word of God. Whatever anybody looks for in a church, they need to look for a pastor who equips the saints to teach the Word of God, and that without apology. Secondly, not only a pastor who teaches the Word of God and equips the saints, which is what Ephesians tells us to do, but secondly, the body becomes equipped to defend the faith. That's why you take notes. That's why you write in the margins of your Bible. That's why you study. That's why you go to a a Beth Moore simulcast. That's why you sit in Sunday school, is to learn to defend your faith, to learn what you believe and why you believe it. And then thirdly, that congregation that has been equipped leaves the assembled church, and the church scatters and begins to bear witness of the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. The church that is not committed to doing that will die. Inevitably, ultimately, it will die. If the pastor doesn't teach the word, if the people aren't equipped, and if the people don't go out, the church will eventually die. And that's why the average age in a Southern Baptist church today is over 60. Because we have not done what God put us on this earth to do in Southern Baptist churches and in all churches for that fact. And that is reproduce ourselves in new people, in new lives, in new families, in new singles, in new individuals, in new children, and in new young people. Not just seeing our own saved, but going outside the walls of the church and sharing the good news and bringing those people in to the family of faith. One of the strongest churches at doing this is Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Florida. Dr. D. James Kennedy is the pastor of that church. If you want to know, and this is a Presbyterian church now. Dr. Kennedy wrote an evangelism explosion, which is used all around the world as a witnessing tool. This is the basic thrust of D. James Kennedy's ministry, to produce people who can make a defense of the gospel and give a testimony to produce people who can make a defense of the gospel and give a testimony. And almost 80% of the people that have come in to Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church have come as a result of a one-on-one witness with somebody in the congregation. It has not been through Dr. Kennedy's preaching. It has not been through crusades. It has been from one-on-one evangelism, people equipped to defend their faith and to share the testimony. Now, as I said at the end this morning, I, I, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I don't think the Great Commission's been removed from the Bible yet. I don't think Jesus has rescinded that command. It is still a command for us. Whether we are comfortable at it, whether we are gifted in evangelism, it is still a command for us to live a life and to have a witness and to give a testimony. And then there's a third thing. Not only did he have an apologetic, not only did he have a testimony, but there was a sensitivity that Paul had. Paul, Paul 
I think Paul moves to the forefront of, of Acts because Paul understood the whole world culture. Here, here was a man who was a, had a Roman passport, Hebrew training, and Greek knowledge. I mean, he had it all. He knew how to go in and out of any circle and any group and begin to talk to them where they were. He knew how to relate to them on their level. Paul was sensitive to his audience and who he was talking to. Paul was sensitive to what he needed to, to talk about it and what he needed to say. But before I got too old to do this, I, I preached a lot of youth camps, and I did about 100 youth camps uh, through the years, and I can tell you, I, I preach differently when I'm with young people than I preach when I'm in church. Why? I'm trying to hold the attention of 13-year-olds all the time. I mean, it, it, you just, you can't do that on the same level that you're doing with somebody that's been a student of the Bible for 50 years. So you have to work a different way. You have to adapt. And that's what Paul was able to do. Paul didn't fall back on cliches. He didn't just get into a rut and do the same thing every time. Paul understood his audience. Let me give you some examples. In Athens, he appealed to their interest in the nature of God. In Ephesus, he dealt with their lifestyles. And then before his fellow Jews, he gave his testimony. Paul would under the leadership of the Spirit, begin to sense what is God doing and where's my open door? And then he would walk through it. And that's what we have to do. We have to be sensitive that we just don't get in a pattern and in a box and we only share Christ the same way every time because different people need us to approach them in different ways. If somebody comes to you and says, man, I'm having a bad day, I'm having a bad week, I've had a bad life. You don't open that conversation up by saying, did you know that if you die today, you're going to go to hell? That's not what they need to hear. What they need to hear is that there is hope in Christ, so you take them where they are to take them to where you want them to go. And that is why Francis Schaeffer said, if I had 30 minutes to share Christ with somebody, I would listen to them for 20 minutes to find out where they're coming from, and then I'd take 10 minutes to talk to them. And see, sometimes we think witnessing is doing all the talking and just getting them to nod in agreement with us. And that's not what it is. Witnessing is finding out where people are and taking them to the cross, showing them how to get to the cross from where they are. So there's sensitivity. And three times in Acts, Paul gives his testimony. We talked about that. Chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26. Paul gives his testimony. And it is a life-changing story. Now here's a valid question. Can the gospel, in reality, transform a person's life? Because when we talk about change, what we typically talk about is style of clothes, the car we drive, uh, uh, we're going to change, at New Year's we're going to get on a new diet. I'm, I'm going to write the cat diet. I don't know, maybe by the time they get through the Atkins diet and whatever the B diet will be, when it gets to the C diet, I'm going to write the cat diet. And the cat diet is, eat whatever you want to because you're going to die anyway. I think it'll sell. It's my opinion. We think about exercise. I'm going to start exercising. We've got a treadmill in our house. I want to tell you what, i got a treadmill that counts the calories that I burn, that counts the fat grams that I burn, and it hadn't counted a lot lately. <laughs> 
I discovered something. That treadmill won't exercise for me. I have to get on it myself. That burdens me. You see, we talk about change, and we're always talking about externals. But when God talks about the changed life, it's about what can happen internally. Can God radically transform a person's life? Yes. Now, you can't transform yourself. But God can transform you from the inside. And so Paul's testimony is a testimony that is life-changing. And I'm convinced if God can do it for the Apostle Paul, he can do it for me and he can do it for you. Here's a man who turned from a murderer to a missionary. From a legalistic Pharisee to a preacher of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A man who hated Christians and began to love Christians. How do you explain that? He didn't get it by taking a seminary course. He didn't get it by by watching television. He got that by the Holy Spirit getting inside of him and revolutionizing the way he looked at life. And so there's this transformation. And what I I want us to see as we kind of walk through the rest of this message is that God has that power available for us. Not just for Paul, not just for preachers, not just for missionaries, not just for Lottie Moon. It's for us. Folks, common people like you and I. Secondly, a changed life comes from a divine encounter. Look at chapter 22 and verse 7. From a divine encounter. Acts chapter 22 and verse 7. Now, you remember this is also uh, shown in Acts chapter 9, same account. And he says, I fell to the ground. And heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, there's two things about this divine encounter. First of all, it was personal. Saul, Saul. I, I, I use a divine, holy sense of humor when I can, when I'm reading the Bible. It's kind of like when, well, you remember when your mother used to call you when you were young? She'd say, Michael. And you didn't respond because you knew it was only when she said, Michael, that's when you, oh, I don't know. Maybe Paul just didn't want to listen the first time. And so God had to, you know, when you remember when your mother used your full name, boy, you knew Jesus is coming back and I'm in trouble. I'm not ready to meet him right now. There was a personal encounter. It was a personal confrontation. Saul couldn't hide in the crowd. Saul couldn't say, Lord, who are you talking to? The Lord was talking to him. God put a bead on the Apostle Paul, and he said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So first of all, it was personal. Secondly, it was pointed. It was pointed. Why are you persecuting me? Now, Paul thought he was persecuting a renegade sect that needed to be stopped and squashed. These renegade Christians, and he had letters of authority that empowered him to hunt them down and arrest them and get rid of them. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? He said, why are you persecuting me? Now, why is that important? Because any and all sin is ultimately against God. It's not against God's people. It's not against someone else. Any and all sin is ultimately against God. When I sin, I may owe you an apology. I may have to ask for forgiveness for something I've done. But I want to tell you, the first place I've got to go is to the Lord because my sin has been against Him. 
Remember David? David's guilty of murder and adultery. But when he makes his great confession in Psalm 51, does he say, Lord, I'm sorry that I killed Uriah? Does he say, Lord, I'm sorry that I had an affair with Bathsheba? He says, no, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. David understood, and one of the reasons that David was a man after God's own heart, yes, David was a great sinner, but David was a greater repenter. When David sinned and when God convicted him, David would in anguish pour his heart out to God. He didn't say, oh God, I'm sorry about that, let's just move on. David was a great repenter. The prodigal son is another picture of that. The prodigal son said, I have sent to his father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He didn't go back and say, Father, I spent all your money and, and, and spent your limit on your credit cards. He said, I've sinned against heaven. All sin is against God. And when we face that reality, there's a divine encounter. Now, what Paul was doing on earth was having an effect on heaven. Now, we may not realize that, but that's what Jesus is trying to say to him. What you're doing on earth is having an effect in heaven. You're persecuting me. What we do in time has an impact in eternity. Paul, you're persecuting me. And folks, there's nothing more illogical and irrational than sin. It's the dumbest thing we do as Christians. Knowing what we know and experiencing what we've experienced and understanding what the Bible says about what our sin did and what it cost God, the dumbest thing I ever do is to sin. And sometimes I need reminders that I've forgotten that that's a dumb thing to do to sin. Why are you persecuting me? These are pointed words. There, there's an agony here. Can I give you another way to look at that question? Now listen to me very carefully. Jesus could have just as easily said to Saul, Saul, what have I ever done to you? All I've ever done is die for you. What did I ever do to you to make you treat me like you're treating me? That's what Jesus is saying. So what did I do to you? You see, for us as believers, it is unreasonable and it is unfair for us to live anything other than a changed life. Because what did Jesus ever do to us except show us grace and mercy when we deserve judgment? And so, what Paul's doing on earth is having an effect on, seven, on, on heaven. But secondly, to rebel or resist God is self-inflicted pain. Now, I want you to look at verse 14. Acts chapter 26 and verse 14. Paul's sharing his testimony. It's got a little different flavor every time he, that he shares it, but it's the same story. He's just sharing it in different ways. Acts 26 and verse 14. The last part of verse 14. Saul, Saul... Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, what's a goad? What in the world does that mean? Well, it's really very simple. A goad is a long shaft of wood that is used to prod the oxen to make him accelerate in his plowing. It's a stick. It's a prod. 
And he, he said, Saul, now, what are you doing kicking against the goads? You see, when that oxen would get prodded with that goad, he, whoa, got to pick up my pace here a little bit. But now sometimes the oxen in that yoke would get mad and get frustrated, didn't want to be prodded, and that oxen would kick back trying to get at the one doing the prodding. And he had hurt himself. The oxen would injure himself. And what God is saying is, Paul, all this time you've been fighting against me and rebelling against me and sinning against me, and the only person you've hurt is yourself. You ever thought of your sin that way? That when you kick against the goads, when you resist the prodding of God to do something, when you think something is freedom, when it's really bondage, that all you've really done is hurt yourself. That's what he's saying. David sinned. He said, oh, David said, yeah, I saw that woman. I'm going to take her. And what does he say in his testimony? That his body began to waste away. Why? Because sin was eating him up on the inside. The prodigal ends up in a pig pen. He sinned and he lost everything. And folks, the longer a person resists God, the more he or she hurts themselves. The longer we wait, the longer we resist, the longer we fail to repent, the longer we fail to ask for forgiveness, the more we ultimately hurt ourselves more than we hurt anybody else. Number three, to live a changed life, the issue of lordship is settled. The issue of lordship is settled. Now, chapter 9 and verse 5, chapter 22 and verse 6, and chapter 26 and verse 15, Paul says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Now, there's a later time when he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? But right now he's asking, who are you, Lord? Now, everybody's got a Lord. Everybody's got a boss. Everybody has a master. Everybody has a God. It may not be a, a uh, wood or stone idol like they had in the Old Testament, but there are, there are gods. You know, you can drive by some places and say, look, there's their God. They built their God, their house. You can go out on Lake Blackshear sometimes and see people riding around on their gods, skiing behind their gods. You can see somebody... You know, driving around and something said, so, well, there's their God. People are committed to, to sex and to drugs and to pleasure and to alcohol. And whatever it is that masters your life and drives you and is the number one topic of your conversation, that's your God. Whatever it is you can't get out of your system, that's your God. Whatever it is you can't wait to lift up, that's your God. And the issue of lordship is a key issue. Paul says in Colossians 1.18 that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Now in Acts chapter 22 and verse 10, he says, what shall I do, Lord? Remember, I referred to that just a minute ago. What does that resolve? When I say, Lord, what shall I do? Remember, now let's go back just a second. Remember when Simon Peter said, not so, Lord? You can't say not so and say, Lord. 
I remember Vance Havner preaching a message on that when I was in high school. And he said, you need to get your pencil or your pen, and you need to get in your Bible, and you need to either cross out not so or cross out Lord, because he can't be Lord if you're saying not so. I'm not going to do that. What this settles is the issue of who's in the authority in your life. Who's the boss? Who's in charge? And you see, what God wants us to do is to settle the issue of lordship. Again, I, I, I mentioned Dr. Havner. Dr. Havner said one time, he said, you know, you have one choice in life, to choose or to reject Jesus. And after that, all your choices are over. Because if he's Lord, you just report for duty every day. You don't make any more choices. He makes the choices. He determines. He decides. And the only question we ever ask is, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, Lord? Where do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? And it's no longer about whether it's a promotion or more money or a bigger house or better this or better that. It just becomes a simple question, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I promise you, if you ask God that question, he'll guide you. And he'll show you what it is he wants you to do. Now, I want to give you a little statement I want to ask you to write down. Because I think it's an important statement in regard to lordship. God judges us not so much on the basis of how much sin we commit. God judges us not so much on the basis of how much sin we commit, but how much light we reject. God judges us not so much on the basis of how much sin we commit, but on how much light we reject. Now let me just give you an example. In light of all the sermons and all the Bible studies that you've heard, in light of the fact that most of you have spent most of your life in an evangelical church that believes the Scriptures without apology, we are judged by a higher standard than those who are in liberal churches that don't believe the Bible. Do you understand that? Whether you were listening or not, we're judged by a higher standard because we know more. We've had more light given to us. You see, I'm judged by a higher standard just because of the people that influenced my life. And I understand that. It's frightening to me. It's frightening to me to think that because of the places that God allowed me to go and the people that God's allowed me to meet, because of that and because of their influence and because of them pouring into my life, I'm judged by a higher standard than by a guy who never got to do those kind of things. I'm not judged so much by the sin that I commit, although you are judged for sin, you understand that. I'm judged by the light that I reject. Let, let me ask you something. It's just a thought. You think there's any accountability at all at a higher level for the hundreds and hundreds of people in our church who read The Purpose Driven Life and haven't stepped up their level of commitment, not one inch? If God is holy and if God is just, the answer to that question is, yes, there is. First sentence of the book, it's not about you. And we have people that every day make the decision, 
it's all about me. And whatever I've got left over and whatever time I've got left over, I might think about giving that to God. They missed the point. Do you think, having seen the movie The Passion, that our view of life should have changed more than it has? I do. Because that movie can't even picture the spiritual separation that Jesus experienced from his Father because of our sin. All that movie shows us is the physical suffering which doesn't even compare to the spiritual suffering of separation from the Father because of our sin. You see, the more light we have, the more accountable we are, the more responsible we are for the light that we've received. And so if the Lord is the Lord, and He is, and if He is our Lord, and He should be, then the Lord is going to judge us by what we've done with the light that we have. And it doesn't matter whether it's come from me or from a Sunday school teacher or from a devotional book or from Purpose Driven Life or from the Passion or from a billboard or whatever it is, we are to respond to the light that we've been given. And you don't back up from where you've already gotten to. We keep moving forward, pressing on. Paul made one decision, and that one decision determined every other decision that he made. Now, the last thing. A changed life demands a response. Go to chapter 22, chapter 22, and then we're going to go back to chapter 26. Chapter 22 in verse 10. And the Lord said to me, get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. God had a plan and a purpose for Saul's life. Verse 12. A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing near said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time I looked up at him and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, I want you to underline that next question. Now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Why do you delay? Look at chapter 26 and verse 16. 26 and verse 16. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sin and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. What are you waiting for? Why are you delaying? Get up. Go do what I've called you to do. 
Vance Hebner said, there is a time to pray and a time to proceed. Some people say, oh, I just need to pray about that. Sometimes you just need to get up and go do something. We can use prayer as an excuse as much as we can use it as a place where we get power in a relationship with God. Now, I want to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, very familiar story, a very familiar story. You know, there were three people who came to Jesus, and you could write by their names, every one of them, they delayed. They wanted to delay. They wanted a more convenient time. They wanted it to be on their schedule. Luke chapter 9 and verse 57. And I'm going to give you an old three-point outline that's about 100 years old. It's not original with me, but it is good. So if you ever need a little outline for something and using this story for somebody who says, I'm not ready, I, I, don't want, I want to think about it for a while, this is a good little outline. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verses 57 and 58 is the story of the uncounted cost. That person didn't think about what it cost to follow Jesus. The uncounted cost. Verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Verses 59 and 60 is the unburied corpse. Now, his father wasn't dead. He just wanted to go home and wait and make sure he was in the will. And sit around for a while. And then after everything was convenient on his time schedule, he'd come follow Jesus. Jesus said, you, you let somebody else worry about that. You follow me. And then in verses 61 and 62, another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the unforsaken circle. That's the unforsaken circle. Lord, I, I just want to go home and, and have one more plate of mama's chicken and dumplings. Maybe sit around in the yard swing and throw the football for a while. Jesus said, no, you come on, follow me. When God calls, folks, he does not stutter. And when he calls, he calls us to obey, not to consider, but to obey. One more reference, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. And somewhere in the margin of your Bible, I want you to, I want you to write something down after I read this verse because it, it is eye-opening when you see this. Hebrews 11 and verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, the first part of that verse, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, literally reads, God was calling 
Abraham was going. God was calling, and Abraham was going. Abraham didn't wait. He didn't hesitate. God called. Abraham got up and started going. He had no idea where he was going, no idea what was ahead of him. God called, and he started going. That's the way we ought to obey. When God calls, we should go. The evidences of a changed life. I'm going to go way back in my illustration file. There's an old story of a man. Some of you can remember this, especially in small-town America, uh, and especially in the, or in the big cities. In New York, it used to be especially true that they used to hire people to wear sandwich boards. Remember those? Is any of you, any of you going to admit it that you're old enough to remember that? And they'd have a big wooden sign on the front and shoulder straps and a big wooden sign on the back. And it would say something like, eat at Joe's. And on the back it would say, two hot dogs for 10 cents. You know, it, it's just a sign. So when somebody come walking towards you, you would see this advertisement on the front. And then when they'd get past you, you'd turn around to see what the sign said on the back. Well, in one of our cities around the turn of the century, there was a man who got saved and gave his life to Jesus. And he didn't really know how to talk. He really didn't know how to testify. He didn't know how to make an apologetic. He, he didn't know anything. But he, he'd try to witness, and people would call him a fool. Say, you're just a fool. You're just a fool. And so he went home, and he made himself a hand-painted sign. And he put on this sandwich board sign. And on the front of it, it said, I'm a fool for Jesus. And when he walked past them and they saw the back, the back of the sign said, whose fool are you? Folks, everybody is going to make a fool of themselves for something or someone. I'd rather be a fool for Jesus than a fool for the things that most of this foolish world is fools for. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask Heather just to come and play if she would and ask our staff to come to the front. The altars are open. We've talked about tonight the power of a transformed life, and Paul has been our example.